Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. So, like months and months ago, like the beginning of 2017, our colleague Julie put a book on my desk titled Catching Breath, The Making and Unmaking of Tuberculosis. And I was so excited about it that it became comical in the office. Uh, I think my actual immediate reaction was, we have to have this author on because so many great people died from TB. Which I know is not the most respectful way to look at it. But I was really excited about this book. When I was a child, I was afraid of TB because my grandmother, long before I was born or my mother was born, when my grandmother was a child, she had to live in a tuberculosis sanatorium for a while because she had TB. And I, like, heard this story, and in my child mind, like, TB became a thing that might consume me. Yeah. Uh, and I, like, I was afraid of that, and I was afraid of dying in childbirth for some reason. <laughs> Uh, well, the good news is you don't have to do either of those things. Nope. Um, and it turns out that this book is also a delight to read. So if you're concerned that a book about a medical thing in history might be dry or boring, it is absolutely not. Catherine Lockheed, the author, her ability to demystify scientific concepts and make them super easy for people who are not scientists to understand is really fantastic. I asked her about it in the interview and she said it was hard, but it does not come off as hard. Uh, and her writing style really surprised me because she's quite witty. She is a microbiologist. She has a decade of research in tuberculosis specifically. So her knowledge, even prior to researching this book, is really vast and it spans centuries. So many, many months later, Holly finally managed to get all the pieces in place to have her on the show. She was gracious enough to roll with having to schedule around a five-hour time difference for a phone interview uh, so we are delighted and thankful that she did. So thankful. That's. It seems like it should be easy, but it really does become <laughs> tricky when you're scheduling around people's lives. Five hours suddenly can become a lot. So we're going to hop right in, though, and learn a little bit about how tuberculosis became such a massive threat to humanity. Right out of the gate, your background is microbiology, but will you share with us what piqued your interest in tuberculosis specifically? Okay, um, so so I always wanted to be a microbiologist since I was really young. Just always been fascinated by the idea of this sort of invisible world bacteria that surrounds us just out of sight. Um, and when it came to deciding what I wanted to work on, I simply went for tuberculosis because it was the biggest infectious disease killer around. And it's it's just quite fascinating thinking about how you get, get these pathogens which um, end up killing their host, which isn't something that bacteria specifically sets out to do. And I just wanted to be part of the work that goes into trying to combat the biggest infectious disease killer. And do you find it challenging as a scientist to then, uh, when you're writing a book, convey scientific concepts to potential non-scientist readers? Yeah, that, that did turn out to be a big sort of... It was difficult when I was writing the book to try and make sure I didn't go too sciencey, and I know that a lot of the people who've read it are actually scientists who then complain that it's not sciencey enough. So, yeah, it's difficult getting the balance. But I think what I've tried to do in the book is find some of the interesting stories from tuberculosis's history and try and use them to get across what's turned it into this world's biggest killer. 
And in the introduction to your book, you characterize yourself as wanting to rebrand tuberculosis for modern public awareness. Can you speak a little bit about mm-hmm. why it needs rebranding? So when I tend to tell people that I've worked on tuberculosis at a party or at a baby group quite often, um, a lot of people seem to see TB as this old-fashioned disease that affected um, poets in the 19th century and that it sort of disappeared when we invented antibiotics and is no longer a problem. And it was a huge problem in the 19th century, but I don't think a lot of people realize that it's still with us and it's still killing something like uh, 1.7 million people a year and causing 10 million new cases every year. So I kind of wanted to rebrand TV as this modern day monster rather than this relic of the past. And the history of TB is really fascinating, but I do think we need to remember that it's not a disease of history. And will you talk a little bit about how TB and Homo sapiens have this sort of hand-in-hand relationship that you talk about through evolution? Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's, it's thought that TB was probably infecting humans back when we were first starting out in Africa's cradle of life. And the idea is that TB then went to spread around the world with the first humans who were leaving Africa during the out-of-Africa migrations. And you can still see all of these different lineages of TB in various parts of the world. And despite all the globalization that spread us humans everywhere, um, we still see these specific lineages of TB infecting specific populations. And the idea is that TB has effectively grown up alongside humanity. It's been with us throughout our entire history and in a way has learned from us and that's one of the reasons why it's so difficult to eradicate TB today just because it's been with us so long. And why do you think it became so prevalent as a global threat before we figured out a way to deal with it? So I think the biggest thing that turn TB into the problem it is today was um, when humans stopped living hunter-gatherer lifestyles and moved to living at first in small villages and then thanks to um, urbanization and industrialization we've got the rise of these big cities which many of us live in today and it was um, humans living in unhealthy overcrowded conditions which really gave TB everything it needed to flourish and become this mass killer When it was infecting hunter-gatherers, it had a very small pool of hosts to infect, and it was just one of many diseases. But when we started living in uh, towns and cities, it suddenly found itself with all of these hosts it could spread to very easily. And that's kind of what turned it into what it is today. I was really delighted that you mentioned in your book the Jewett City Vampires and the New England Vampire Panic. Uh, they were actually a topic of a previous episode yeah. of our podcast. Um, will you, oh, talk, wow. will you yeah. talk a little bit about how you see that point in history as really representative of how humans have dealt with tuberculosis historically? Yeah, so I loved the story of the New England vampires when I came across it, and I I touch on it in the book more from the TV side of things than the actual the history of the New England vampires. Um, so I included this story because I feel like it represented the sheer panic that would surround this disease back in the 18th, 19th century. So TB 
was a disease which was killing a huge number of people. It's been estimated it had killed something like one in seven people who had ever lived by this point in history. And um, it was a disease that could strike down whole families, sometimes months apart or years apart. But nobody knew anything about bacteria at this point. So they didn't know it was an infectious disease. They didn't know it was spreading through people coughing or living in overcrowded little houses. Um, and there wasn't anything anyone could do about it. So once you got it, you were quite possibly going to die from it. And people were willing to try anything to try and save their loved ones from this disease. So I think that's where this whole folk um, belief of the vampires rising from the grave at night to feed upon the living came from um, in terms of consumption and TB. So the idea behind the folk belief was that um, someone who had previously died of TB or consumption, as it was known back then, uh, was, was coming back to life at night to um, come and feed on family members who were still alive. And the way to stop this mischievous uh, undead person was to go to the graveyard and um, carry out various sort of quite ghoulish um, sort of digging up the body removing the heart, turning it into a potion and then feeding this to the person who had TB. And it was just, I think it was just a case of people wanting to try anything to save their loved ones when there wasn't any science that could do anything for them. I loved that Catherine included the New England Vampire Panic in her book. Yeah. It made me so excited when I got to that part. I was like, I know about this. We are going to have more with microbiologist and history author Catherine Lockheed, but first we will pause for a quick sponsor break. In this next segment of my interview with Catherine Lockheed, she shares her thoughts on why tuberculosis became so romanticized in the 19th century. Will you speak to the weird romanticism about tuberculosis that did happen in the 19th century? Yeah, I, I always find it, it's, it's probably what TB is best known for um, among many people, this idea that it's this romantic, passionate disease that could inspire creativity. And it was quite prevalent in uh, Victorian London in the 19th century. And um, I think part of the reason for that is was that it famously uh, killed a large number of poets it was killing a lot of other people as well, often the very poor people in the city, although that wasn't quite so romantic. Um, and so it was this disease where it sort of found its way into the culture of the day. You see these operatic heroines um, who were dying of consumption. It was in a lot of literature um, and art, and it just inspired a huge amount of the culture of the day. I think women, the ideal of beauty among women was seen to be this very pale fragile, consumptive look, which is, is quite strange when you think about it today that people were glamorizing this infection. But I think it was just a response to a disease that was killing such huge numbers of people. And I'm curious because I know it has changed over time, but uh, what has TB treatment historically involved and how is it treated today comparatively? So it took a really long time for any sort of TB treatment that worked to be introduced. There were all of these historical uh, 
attempts at treating it that wouldn't have done very much. And I think in Victorian England, you had a lot of remedies that were just never going to work. Uh, the first real treatment, I suppose, was the um, invention of the sanatorium, where people could be sent for rest, a good diet, exposure to sunlight, exercise, and that went some way to treating TB, but it obviously wasn't a perfect cure. There were also, at the turn of the 20th century, some fairly barbaric surgical treatments used to try and cure the disease, such as collapsing someone's lung, sometimes permanently, um, to just also kill the TB infection that was in that lung. And that was really the only way that people could be cured if they had a serious TB infection. And then in the 1940s and 50s, we started seeing antibiotics being introduced. And this revolutionized the treatment of TB. And actually, the antibiotics that were introduced in the 50s are still the ones that are commonly used today. So the treatment for a normal um, non-drug resistant case of TB today would be a combination of four antibiotics that you would take for uh, several months. So you'd take four of them for two months and then carry on taking two of the others for another four months after that. Um, so six-month treatment in total with some fairly horrible, quite old-fashioned antibiotics. And we are seeing a few new ones being introduced now, but not at a rate that's quick enough to deal with the problem of drug resistance. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned drug-resistant TB because that was what I was going to bring up next. Um, will you talk a little bit about how drug-resistance TB has evolved and sort of when we realized that was happening? Yeah, so drug-resistance is always, it's pretty much inevitable with any bacterial infection. The problem is, is when it gets set in place in a population and sort of takes hold. And today we're seeing huge numbers of cases of uh, drug-resistant TB. I don't think we fully understand how much there is out there just because it's not very well documented at the moment. Um, so we can have cases today called multidrug resistant TB, which are ones that are resistant to a couple of the frontline drugs that are used to treat it. Um, and this can go all the way to completely or totally drug resistant TB, which is practically untreatable by current, uh, the drug, the current drug regimen. So the first time people started to realize it was a problem, um, so I can't remember the exact dates, actually, but they, we first started seeing a strain of TB called um, XDR-TB emerging in parts of Africa, which um, managed to get itself into the news just because a huge number of the people who were infected with these strains of TB were dying from it. Um, there's also been a lot of recent talk in India about their huge drug resistance problem, which wasn't people didn't realize it was such a problem until fairly recently. How TB drug um, resistant strains emerge is that you get resistance in just one bacterium um, and then this multiplies and then starts spreading to other people if it's left unchecked. And one really good example of this was in uh, was following the collapse of the Soviet Union. So before before the collapse, you had a really good TB program. Everything was well controlled. People had access to decent health care. However, when everything fell into ruin, um, people didn't have access to the same medicines and drug-resistant strains were able to emerge and uh, go unchecked. And we can actually trace back modern-day drug-resistant strains to this point in time and see that they sort of, a number of them started off in the 
former Soviet Union, and then just gradually grew over time and developed resistance to further drugs until they reached a point where they weren't really that treatable with any of the drug regimens that we have available today. You mention in your book that TB treatment, uh, even now, is really, really rough on the patient. Um, will you talk about some of the risks mm-hmm. in both previous versions of treatment, including collapsed lungs? Like, what was the mortality like versus the actual cure? Um, I don't know the the exact numbers, but um, without treatment, people who have sort of a serious TB infection, around 70%, will die. Um, this is less if they have a TB infection that's um, sort of a little bit more below the radar, I suppose. And then, then around 20% of these people will die if, un- if left untreated. So it works out around 50% of people with an untreated TB infection will go on to die from it. And today, TB is essentially a treatable disease and we shouldn't be seeing any deaths. Um, however, we are seeing one point seven million a year and unfortunately a lot of that's not down to the disease itself but it's down to all the social factors that are wrapped up with TB and the fact that a lot of people aren't being diagnosed or they don't have access to the proper treatment regimens. Um, What do you think is the most important moment in tuberculosis's long, long history? That's that's an interesting question. I I suppose I'd say the Neolithic Revolution where people stopped living these hunter-gatherer lifestyles and moved to having um, little villages and relying on agriculture and farming to survive. And that was really what set in motion TB's rise to becoming this um, huge global killer. The Industrial Revolution as well was an acid turning point for TB because you started getting these huge cities and people were living in really horrible, overcrowded conditions, and it was a very unhealthy lifestyle, and this made them more likely to catch TB and then to go on to die from it. Um, We actually started seeing a decline in TB in places like the UK and uh, the US following the Industrial Revolution when people started living healthier lifestyles and um, having better healthcare, better cleanliness, uh, less polluted cities, etc. And so that was sort of big turning point for humans, I suppose, in our fight against TB. And in uh, the modern world, in the UK, in the US and other high-income countries, TB is no longer such a huge problem. So I think, I mean, this is one of the big problems with TB is that it is a disease of inequality and poverty and social factors. It's not just the bacteria. So would you say that's why there is this misconception that it's sort of history's disease? Because the people that are talking about it are usually more affluent than the people actually dealing with it? Yeah, I, I think so. It's um, Yeah, it's, it's difficult because sort of campaigning for a disease which isn't um, really that much of a problem in the UK and um, countries such as the US as well. But unfortunately, it's going to take high-income countries to be able to combat the problem. Everyone's going to have to work together and we're not going to be able to get rid of TB in places like the US or the UK unless we get rid of it in the countries where it is a huge problem. So India, um, China, South Africa, Pakistan, um, Indonesia and Nigeria are the places where TB is currently the biggest problem and these are more low-income countries compared with our own. I 
think it's a really great point to make that TB cannot be eradicated in affluent countries unless we also address it in countries where it's much more prevalent. Yeah. We are also going to talk with microbiologist Catherine Lockheed some more in just a moment after we pause for one more quick sponsor break. So coming up, find out what sort of testing we're really going to need to address the 1.7 million annual deaths that still happen from tuberculosis. In your book, you make the case for raising TB awareness and making testing the kind of thing that people should be doing, even if they're asymptomatic. Will you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so um, one of the big problems with TB is that we don't have any really good diagnostic tests that is able to accurately tell us whether someone has the disease. I mean, there are methods of diagnosing it, but they're not always that good for um, use in countries where, for example, there isn't a dedicated power supply um, or it's extremely hot and dusty and you can't be using these high-tech pieces of lab equipment um, unless someone's really well-trained in them and you've got all of the infrastructure and support that's required to sort of analyse the test results after you've run the test itself. Um, so, yeah, I would I would love to see a world where people who are thought to have TB are tested using these modern um, great new diagnostics. Um, I think it's more likely that we're going to have to develop new diagnostic tests that can be used um, out in places where they don't have access to these to the new technologies and it would be nice to see everyone being tested who has symptoms of TB but importantly I'd also like to see a sort of a drug resistant profile being taken for new cases of TB so we can pick up whether someone's infection is going to be a drug resistant one before they start treatment with the traditional drugs which won't work if it's um, not a sensitive strain if it's a drug resistant strain. And uh, to wrap up is there any, we talked a little bit about the Jewett City vampires and some other historical moments that you think are important, <laughs> but do you have a favorite sort of time in history to talk about uh, or, you know, that has a, a unique story of TB within it? Yeah, so when I was starting out writing the book, I sort of thought to myself, um, I wanted to go back in time and find the first case of TB and have a look at how far back we could actually diagnose this disease. And one of the problems is that bacteria don't leave behind fossils, so you can't trace them all the way back into history. But the earliest diagnosed case in a human um, comes from this little village called Atlet Yam that's just off the coast of Israel. So it's been submerged under the sea for something like 9,000 years. And because of the conditions, so nice layer of sediment and cool water, it meant that the bodies buried in this village were extremely well preserved. So when they were excavated in the 1980s, people were able to detect tiny amounts of bacterial DNA from the TB pathogen um, in two of the people who were buried there, so a mother and a baby, and find that these are quite possibly the earliest diagnosed case of TB around. And I really liked that story because I came at writing the book from a very scientific perspective. And as I went about writing it, I started to think more about the actual people who were involved in the story. Um, so, yeah, it was it was very interesting to find out about this village where this oldest case of TB was found. Obviously, TB goes back a lot further in time, but it's much harder to diagnose it in ancient remains. 
And then finally, uh, where can people find you if they want to learn more about your book or your work? I have a blog called germboo.blogspot.co.uk where people can come and find me. Um, and I sometimes blog about science and my book and other thoughts about the world of TV in general. Many, many thanks to Catherine Lockheed for taking time to speak with me. Uh, we are going to have a link to her blog that she mentioned in the show notes for this episode so you can get there really easily and learn about all the things that she has to share because she is really an incredibly fun to read writer. Awesome. Yeah. Do you have listener mail for us? I do, and it won't scare us about the possibility of contracting TB and not knowing it. It will delight us with uh, gifts. Yay. I'm doing a little bit of an unboxing because this is an unusual and wonderful day when Tracy is actually in Atlanta and in the office with me. We are in a studio looking at one another across the table. It's pretty exciting. So instead of uh, opening a parcel and holding it up for her in front of a camera on a computer, I can just show her cute things. Yay. Uh, This is from our listener, Christina. And she writes, Hi, Holly and Tracy. I just wanted to say how much I enjoy listening to your podcast. I am an illustrator. And then she tells us uh, where she lives and where she works. I'm not going to include that in the interest of her privacy. But she says, One of my former students turned me on to your podcast, and I've been binging it ever since. We illustrators work long hours straight through on projects, and it always helps to have educational and entertaining audio to keep us company in the wee hours of the morning or when we're on a twelve on a two hour commute, uh, I know that thing. I do it when I sew. Mm-hmm. Yeah, enclosed are two calendars featuring an IP I created back in 2011. I hope you enjoy the many historically charged characters and the merry quotations that come with each one. Thank you for keeping me sane. Have a wonderful year, Christina. Oh my goodness, Christina. These calendars are like crack to me. They're so wondrous. I'm handing them to Tracy. So what these are are animals, the most beautiful and detailed illustrations um, of animals as various historical figures. This is a dog, David Bowie. Yes. (laughs) And there's... um, uh, Slothophene Baker. Yes, they're really amazing. And her art is mind-blowingly beautiful. I could not be more delighted. There's (laughs) a King Tutankhamiao. That is so gorgeous, uh, since I like anything with Egyptian imagery, and I am a crazy cat lady. This I is feel basically like, heaven to me. I feel like the the sloth, Josephine Baker, is like a special homage to previous hosts of the show, which included some big-time sloth fans, and also they did a podcast on Josephine Baker. Yeah, uh, so I just, I seriously love, love, love these so much. Uh, this is one where there's also a Mary Smelly, which is Mary Shelley is a skunk that is so beautiful. I kind of can't deal with it. This one has William Shakespeare. <laughs> it's really, really wonderful. There is also Teddy Roosevelt as a big gray cat, which is perfect. Um, obviously, Christina, we are delighted beyond all measure by this gift. Thank you so much. This also perfectly settles my my current quandary of what kind of cal- wall calendar I was going to get for next year. Because I love a calendar, but it's hard to decide sometimes. Well, and this is the right size to go on the wall by my computer uh, because I have a Hamilton calendar that I I purchased for the big wall calendar. But this is good for the adjacent to computer. And I can then look at Kitty Roosevelt. It's the cutest thing. I mean, these are so gorgeous. I love, love, love them. So we're going slightly bananas over here, Christina. Uh, We are going to... um, take some pictures of this and make sure they get up on social media. Uh, and we thank you so much. What a great way to start a new year. Yeah. Is with a cat 
That's King Tut. Yep. <laughs> if you would like to write to us about this or any other episode, you can do so at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. You can also find us pretty much everywhere on social media as Missed in History. You can visit our website, which is MissedInHistory.com. Sift through our archive of all the episodes, look at show notes for the episodes Tracy and I have worked on, and just see what we've been up to. Uh, we hope you do. Come and visit us at MissedInHistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. <laughs>